here. You are listening to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast app, the place to be to learn about the latest and greatest life stories from people who are doing amazing disability advocacy work. Today, we had the pleasure of welcoming Senator Thomas Richard Harkin onto our show. Senator Harkin served in Congress for four decades. Without further ado, let's listen in on our conversation with Senator Harkin. Senator Harkin, welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. Hi, Michelle. Nice to be with you. I'm sorry it took so long to get connected up here. Thanks. No worries. So I'm just going to do a brief introduction. You are a person that needs no introduction whatsoever, but let me just do a 30-second spiel, okay? Okay. So Senator Tom Harkin is from Cumming, Iowa. He is the, the son of a coal miner and a Slovenian immigrant. His mom immigrated to the U.S. through an arranged marriage. Senator Harkin served 10 years in the House of Representatives and 30 years in the United States Senate. He is the chief co-sponsor of the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. Welcome, Senator Harkin. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Of course. I want to kick off our first question with um, our first question with since you are probably the most knowledgeable person I know about Iowa, I was curious to know, what makes Iowans unique from people from the other 49 states and other U.S. territories? Well, I don't know that we're all that different. I think uh, every four years uh, when we have a presidential race, uh, Iowa, due to a kind of a quirk and circumstance, I don't think Iowa is so unique. Uh, about every four years when we have a presidential race, it, it pops into the news because we're the first state in the whole presidential primary season. And that's just due to a set of odd circumstances that happened back in the late 60s and early 70s. So Iowa sort of gets in the news every four years because of that. Uh, I would say the only one of the reasons that Iowa is probably unique is it's 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 a very rural state, a lot of small towns and communities. Our, our biggest city, the capital, Des Moines, only has about 300,000 people. Uh, and then everything is less than that. We're a well-educated state, uh, a lot of uh, just well-educated people, a lot of colleges, small colleges, uh, plus state universities. Uh, I, I guess I having served in office for 40 years from Iowa, uh, I, I could brag on it, but look at, we're, we're, we're just a average normal. Yeah, you're very humble. So do you had a brother, you know, who was deaf and you mentioned your brother was taken out of your home when he was around six years old, nine years old. And he went, he went to a school for the deaf and, and dumb, um, as it was called. So what kind of laws do you think could have been passed to have made your brother Frank's life more uh, fulfilling, meaningful, and dignified while he was growing up so that he didn't have to experience some of the discriminations that you witnessed and you experienced alongside with him, through him? Yeah, well... Uh, another law that I worked on that I got passed through my uh, through my committee it was also called the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA, IDEA, 
And that uh, mandated mainstreaming of kids uh, in schools, uh, but also provided support mechanisms that the kids had to have support mechanisms. For example, uh, sign language interpreters, uh, maybe readers uh, for those who are blind, uh, maybe even uh, help for students that have uh, intellectual or developmental disabilities. Uh, so that wasn't around at that time. If we'd have had that, he would have just gone to school with his peers, right? And not been sent away to a separate school. Uh, but in those days, again, it, it's just, it was just, it's been true for centuries that persons with disabilities were always isolated. They were just isolated from society, um, uh, treated as, quote, different, uh, as sort of less than human. And if there was any, uh, any um, overtures at all uh, to persons with disabilities, it was usually in a patronizing atmosphere, pity, uh, charity, uh, that kind of thing, rather than seeing a person uh, with a disability uh, and saying, wait, it's, it's not the disability that prohibits a person from having a full life. It's the barriers. It's the physical barriers, the attitudinal barriers that people have. Uh, that's really, I think, the, uh, the essence also of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, disability is not a dividing line. There's not a dividing line where if on, you fall on one side, you're disabled, and on the other side, you're not disabled. There is no such dividing line. It's a spectrum. It's like a speedometer on a car. Uh, and you may fall somewhere on that spectrum. Uh, you may fall, maybe you're clear down at zero with no impairments whatsoever, but then you have an accident. All of a sudden, you fall someplace else on that spectrum. Maybe you have an accident, you can't walk, or you can't use your arms, or whatever. And then maybe you heal and get better. Okay, then you fall someplace else on that spectrum. Now, take me, for example. I'm 79 years old. <laughs> uh, I've always been pretty healthy, but I may be asking you to repeat yourself because I can't hear very well. So I fall someplace on that disability spectrum that I didn't fall before. You see what I mean? So we all are on that spectrum someplace. There is no dividing line between disabled and not disabled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I cannot agree with you more. And I think you bring out an interesting point because when I was growing up, I lived in the orphanage for about a decade or so, and us, the orphans who came into the orphanage were divided. One side was the able-bodied um, kids, and then the other side were everyone else who had some sort of disability, and I was on that side, and there was that divide. And then also because of my disability, I wasn't able to go to school, and uh, because there were no wheelchairs, no ramps, and things like that that were provided. And, and it's that attitude of this negative stigma towards 
disabilities, as you know, in many Asian countries, seeing it as a curse and seeing it as a sin that was committed in a previous life. And that shame that comes with that impacts the physical infrastructure and the opportunities offered towards that group of people. And then when I came here in the U.S. in 2001, you know, the attitude, even though there's still as you know, a lot of progress to me made here in the U.S. as well, but the attitude was totally different. It's, it was a lot more open and a lot more, you know, positive. And so opportunities in the physical infrastructure at the time I was telling you, the ADA had been implemented for over a decade now. And so the opportunities I was offered once I was adopted into the U.S. was totally different due to different mindsets and people like you passing amazing, incredible legislations that made it, you know, them, that has made my a lot of my life possible. And uh, anyway, I've, I've looked at your career. You have a, for as young as you are, you have an amazing background. <laughs> Thank you. And so next, I want to shift on to your time in the Senate, which you've spent three decades in. And so what I'm curious about is, how did you maintain the hunger to do good and stay grounded even when you became successful and you could have made all the money in the world going to the private industry or whatever? Why did you choose to stay in public service? And, uh, you know, when you could have chosen a life of wealth and luxury? Well, I, I don't know that I can answer that other than that's what I wanted to do. I mean, that's what was inside me. I, I, I think maybe I've always been kind of outraged uh, by a sense of injustice. Uh, even before I was in the in the Congress, I I was anti-war protester on the Vietnam War. I I worked on human rights issues. I uh, uh, I was a lawyer that I I represented. Uh, poor people as a legal aid lawyer. So I represented people who couldn't afford a lawyer because they were getting stepped on all the time by the power structure. So I just always, I don't know why, I'm something inside me. I guess we all have different motivations. We all have sort of different callings in this life. And, and that sort of was mine. And so I, I never really thought much about making a lot of money. Uh, I just thought more about public service and about changing, changing things so that that life was not would not be so hard on people who maybe didn't have a lot of money or a lot of power or had a physical impairment like my brother or my nephew. Uh, I guess that's all I can say. I don't know. That's that's just what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that you can explain, right? It's like, what is love? You know it when you feel it. It's one of those things. So, so with your amazing public service background and your years, decades, four decades of experience in the political arena, how do you think we can effectively empower youth with disabilities to get involved in politics? Um, just like how you were inspired to pursue politics, I know in college at Catholic University, um, when when you were exposed to JFK and that that the election, and and I know 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you switched from engineering to political science. Mm -hmm. And um, so what can we do to replicate that kind of empowerment, inspiration into today's youth with disabilities and have such a rich career such as yours in, you know, co-sponsoring or sponsoring these, less, these amazing le legislations? Well, I, uh, let's see, how could I, well, I, I guess what I say to young people with disabilities is, look, if you have a dream and you want to do something, pursue it. Don't let anyone tell you you can't do this, you can't do that, or, and, and, and I know it's tougher, sure it is. Uh, it's always tougher on people who start with nothing to do something. I mean, as you pointed out when you introduced me, my father only had a sixth grade education. Uh, he was a coal miner most of his life. He never made any money. My mother was an immigrant with very little formal education. We didn't have anything. I didn't know politicians. <laughs> we were never involved in politics. We were never involved in business or anything like that. But you can make it. I mean, you... you if you have the desire and the and the sort of the the desire and the and the willpower to do something, do it. So I tell young people with disabilities, look, we need role models. There are not many role models in public office of persons with disabilities. So I tell them, you be the first wave. You start getting, you start running. Don't think just about running for the Senate or the House of Representatives. Run for the school board. Get on the school board, run for a city council, uh, uh, run for a county office, run for a state legislative office. Do those kinds of things and start to build up role models for the next generation to say, well, oh, well, if Michelle can do that, I can do that, too. Or uh, Alex, my friend out in Iowa, who is on the board of supervisors uh, in, in, in a county in Iowa. Uh, uses a wheelchair, but now he's a young man, and so he's now an example for other younger people. Well, if he can do it, maybe I can do it, you see. So that, that's why I say to young people, don't, there are, there are enough barriers out there still <laughs> for persons with disabilities, physical and attitudinal barriers. I tell young people, don't build your own barriers. Don't put any of your own, don't put your barriers up. Break through those. And if there are barriers out there, challenge them. If there are barriers that are violating the law, go to court. <laughs> go after those things. Uh, and and uh, don't wait for somebody else to do it. Um, I just, uh, I, I, I just feel so strongly that young people, and, and you're, we're seeing a change now. I call them the ADA generation, like you. <laughs> you grew up under the ADA, you had access, you're not gonna sit back and let someone who is not disabled tell you what you can and cannot do. And that's my hope for the future, is this younger generation of people with disabilities that can be physical, some are mental, uh, and, and they're just not going to take a back seat anymore. And to me, 
if there's anything that's been fulfilling in my life, it's that. It's seeing this new generation that that they're just not going to be patronized and they're not going to be pitied and they're not going to be isolated any longer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, that, that was very inspiring to me. Um, and as you said, there are certain, certainly are challenges, um, even for an able-bodied person, you know, due to the current political climate and the nature of campaigns. Um, we're transitioning on a series of questions on your views, views towards disability, okay? So why do you believe in people with disabilities so much that you've devoted a tremendous amount of time um, during your career focusing on disability rights and advocacy issues? Well, I, I don't know that I can answer that. I, I suppose because of my brother, first of all, I saw how he was discriminated against. Uh, two things my brother said to me one time uh, in, in his life that I've always remembered. One, he said, I may be deaf, but I'm not dumb. And secondly, um, when he got out of that school, they told him he could only be one of three things. He could be a shoe cobbler, uh, a printer's assistant, or a baker. And my brother said, I don't want to be any of those things. And they said, well, okay, you're going to be a baker. So they made him a baker, even though he didn't want to be that. So my brother said to me one time, he said, you know, the only thing I know I can't do is here. I know I can't do that. Now, whatever else I might be able to do, I don't know until I try it. Mm -hmm. so yeah, I that's a very good point, you know, um, what the limitations that other people put on you, um, yeah. whether because of their own ignorance, um, yeah. is a very tragic phenomenon. Okay. And so I want to segue into how the, the view and the conceptualization of people with disabilities, okay? So I know there has been some debate, debate around this, but do you think that we should change the word disability to another more perhaps empowering and active word so that individuals with disabilities are conceptualized from the beginning in a more positive light? Or do you think that this the word disability is just fine um, the way it is um, and that it's people's attitudes that really need to change. And if you think it should be changed, what alternative words would you use? Well, now that's a good question. Uh, I have always been of the mental process that as we advance and as we move ahead in our concepts of individual liberty, uh, of, of breaking down barriers for people, <clears throat> full inclusion into society, that words might change and concepts might change. Rather than up to me, <laughs> I look to this new generation, you <laughs> and others with disabilities, <clears throat> to perhaps think about how the terms should be used. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I definitely understand what you're saying. And the times change, words will change. And hopefully, attitudes will change, uh, most importantly. Sure. Moving on to ADA, the Americans Disabilities Act of 1990. If you could go back in time and, imp and improve the ADA, 
what would you change about it? Oh, <laughs> oh, there are a few things, if I could. But first of all, let me say this. A lot of times people ask me today, could you pass the Americans with Disabilities Act in Washington today? My answer to that is absolutely not. We could never get that legislation passed today in the Congress of the United States. <clears throat> never happened. We just had a point in time where we had a president of the United States, George H.W. Bush, who was strongly in favor of it. Um, we had people in the Senate, people in the House, both Republicans and Democrats who were for it. Everything just came together at that point in time. Uh, we had some outliers. We had some people absolutely opposed to it, but they kept getting fewer and fewer in number. That's the first thing. Secondly, yes, there are things I would change. First of all, I would have had some kind of a mandate in there for businesses to hire persons with disabilities <clears throat> that <clears throat> there should have been put in there that if 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 the disabled community is is 15%, let's say, of the populace, then the private sector should have as its goal 15% of their employees be persons with disabilities. I would have been stronger on employment in the ADA than we were. Uh, we just weren't strong enough on that. Um, that's the biggest change. The second change I would have made would have been something that I've attempted to do since that time, and that is focus on youth transition services for a young person with disabilities to transition to the workforce or to higher education. Some of that we kind of filled in later on, but but it's not part of the ADA. Uh, I mentioned changing the Voc Rehab Act, uh, also changing the focus to go to college or secondary education. I would have focused on that also. Uh, but the main the the big point is employment. I would have focused more on employment. I see. Yeah, it is. I, I know the <laughs> the stats for employed people with disabilities are quite low, right? In the in the thirties. Um, so next question: How can we make the ADA a global benchmark? And when it comes to providing basic access and uh, opportunities for people with disabilities all around the world. Well, we've done that. Uh, there's something called the United Nations. Uh, 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 convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, okay? That basically was framed uh, around the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, it was promulgated in 2007, I believe. I could be off there. And I think almost all countries have signed on to it. The United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, if you read it, it's much like the Americans with Disabilities Act. So it commits nations to do things, to break down barriers, to have access to education, to uh, uh, provide for uh, employment opportunities. Uh, it's, uh, it's, so it's there. We have a global document now. Now, again, getting countries to live up to it, that's another problem. But nonetheless, it's there. 
Some countries are doing better than others, but if they've signed on, then we need to use the United Nations as a platform, a vehicle to ask, how is your country doing? You signed on to it. Are you living up to it? Uh, and that's one of the things I've been doing since I've been retired. And that is just focusing on employment, the employment aspect of that. But the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities is a great document. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. And it is a shame that we are not, the U.S. has not ratified it. So I know this next question will be a book as well. So, um, and so I challenge you to be brief in one core sentence. Tell me why the U.S. has not arrived ratified the uh, UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities? And why should current current disability rights activists and advocates push Congress to ratify the UNCRPD right now? Well, the United Nations, the United States, we tried to sign it, and I thought we had the votes for it, but a senator by the name of Cruz, Ted Cruz from Texas, had convinced a lot of people in the Senate on the Republican side that it was going to take away our, uh, our, uh, our, our, uh, uh, what am I trying to, huh? Our our sovereignty. We're going to give up our sovereignty. That was it. And, and then there was some abortion rights activists that said it was something about abortion and it just got all clouded up. And so we lost it. But President Obama did sign it. So the president has signed it and it's still alive. As long as the president signed it, it is alive. So some future Senate could could pass it. Uh, It's just our unique system in America uh, where the president can sign it, but the Senate has to ratify it. Um, So it's still there even though we not ratified it. So you think it's Ted Cruz's fault that we haven't ratified it yet? Well, we haven't ratified it because there's still a number of Republican senators that don't like the United Nations. Uh, they don't like the idea that we would sign something like that. And there's still a lot of misinformation about it out there uh, among uh, Republicans. The Democrats all supported it. And a lot of Republicans at that time, when we voted on it, I think that was in 2012, or no, maybe 2010, I forget what year it was. We came very close, but we lost a few Republican senators and we've not been able to bring it up since. Mm-hmm. And, and why should current uh current politicians and individuals with disabilities, anybody who are, is an advocate, push for it now? Or should we wait for a better political climate? Well, no, I th- we've got to keep pushing on it. I think every person who's running for the Senate, when they're out there on the stump, when they're meeting with constituents and are running for election or re-election to the Senate, should be asked, will you vote to ratify the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities that I think over 160 countries have now ratified, which is mirrors the Americans with Disabilities Act, 
will you vote to ratify it? Mm-hmm. And get them to answer that. And if they say no, then you've got to question why. What is their reluctance? Because, or would you, I guess a better way maybe to frame it, if I were asking the question of someone running for the Senate, I would say, do you support the Americans with Disabilities Act? If they say yes, then say, well, would you support signing the United Nations Convention, which is just like the Americans with Disabilities Act, but which puts us in a better position to advocate for disability rights globally? And if they say no, then say, well, what's the difference? Why shouldn't we be a part of an international effort to break down barriers? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's um, certainly something that needs to be brought up. Um, so next, you've, you've mentioned this a bit now with employment of di- people with disabilities. You right. once said at the time, 65% of adults with disabilities are not in the workforce. That's a blot on our national character. And then you added, the Americans with Disabilities Act had four goals, full participation, equal opportunity, independent living, and economic self-sufficiency. On the first three, we've done pretty well. We've moved the needle forward, but on on economic self-sufficiency, we haven't even moved the needle. And at the time when you wrote this, it was the 28th year of ADA. And and you said, we're in about the same place we were when we passed the ADA. So what are the leading factors that that are causing this uh, high unemployment for people with disabilities? And uh, what can current policymakers do to start moving the needle forward? Well, the problem has been the reluctance of the private sector to reach out and bring in persons with disabilities into into their into their into their businesses. Uh, A lot of it has to do with human resources uh, in these businesses, Um, and I think there's been a lot of um, unfounded fear that if they hire someone with a disability that uh, there'll be a burden rather than an asset. But every time, and I, I can say this without any fear of contradiction, every time we have seen a business employ a person with a disability, provide, and if they provide adequate training and some support for that person, that person becomes one of their best employees. They become loyal, they never miss work, they become more productive. I've seen this happen. And and yet businesses have been so reluctant uh, to do this. Now we've had some leaders in the business community that have done that. I speak of Randy Lewis and Walgreens uh, uh, and and, uh, Doug Wasson, who was the CEO at that time of Walgreens that have hired countless persons with disabilities. Uh, and who basically told me that that um, they're the places they where they have persons with disabilities working is their most productive centers. Wow, those are some incredible stories there. And I know I've heard from you know my 
professional experience that that has been the case as well. Um, if you hire a person with disabilities or a um, group of individuals with disabilities uh, who is right for the environment, a good fit, um, it the returns are higher and it there's greater loyalty as well to the company or organization. Absolutely. You know, the, I think the other thing I, I tell the business sector now is, look, you have a training program, but maybe that training program does not fit for a person with a disability. You may have to think about changing your training program somewhat for a person with a disability. Secondly, you may have to make an accommodation on the job, but those are minor. They don't cost very much sometimes. And sometimes those modifications are even better for a person without a disability in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Once they do that, uh, it's just sometimes they say, well, we, we tried to hire a person with a disability and they got in the training program and it didn't work. Well, but maybe the training program was not adaptable to a person with a disability. Maybe they needed to change their training program a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these days, a lot of jobs really don't need that physical um, component, right? And right. so if it's a good fit and it, if it matches with the interest of the person interviewing, then it really shouldn't be a problem. Right. So moving on to the Harkin Institute. So as the lead proponent of the Americans with Disability, uh, sorry, Americans with Disabilities Act and the 88 Amendments Act of 2008, you are well known for your long, long time policy advocacy for the disability community. And after your retirement from Congress in 2015, um, you founded the Harkin Institute for Public Policy and Citizen Engagement at Drake University. I've had the, the honor of meeting Joseph Jones and many of your um, team there. So um, the Harkin Institute has had a significant focus on um, disability policies. Why did you decide to establish the Harkin Institute? And uh, why choose disability issues as one of the key issues you wanted the Institute to move forward with? And how is the Institute, how is the Harkin Institute um, helping to move the needle forward in employing people with disabilities? Well, Michelle, I, I wanted to start the Institute a couple of reasons. One, uh, Drake University to house all of my 40 years of papers and documents and all that kind of stuff for researchers in the future to go back and find out how we did things and how that all worked out. Uh, so I, I, I had that part of it. And secondly, I wanted to set up an institute that would be a public policy institute to inform citizens. I think one thing I found in all my public life is that if citizens were well informed and knowledgeable about the policies, we have a better electorate. We have a better chance of passing good legislation and good policy. So I wanted a policy institute, not a political institute. <laughs> we have enough politics but something that could get young people engaged at, around issues and to develop policy for the future. One of that policy directions was disability. And again, uh, 
even though we focus on different areas of disability rights, we started the Harkin Summit to be an annual international conference focused on only one thing, employment of persons with disabilities. So I guess what I've done in my retirement is I have narrowed my focus a lot on disability issues to that one item uh, because I, I, it's just so important. It's so important to start breaking down the barriers and getting persons with disabilities into jobs. Again, role models for young people. Um, a lot of talent is being wasted. I, I, know, I, I know so many persons with disabilities that are so talented, but they're held back because of access, because of companies are afraid to hire them and afraid to reach out to them and provide a welcoming employment structure. So that's what I wanted to do is to really focus my energies and focus the Institute on employment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very admirable. And I, I think that's wonderful as seeing as that that's one of the, you know, of the four pillars, that's the one that needs from the ADA, that's the one that needs the most amount of progress in. Thank you for that. So I was wondering, as during your time in Congress, 10 years in the House and 30 in the in the Senate, um, how were you, how did you encourage people with disabilities to come on your staff? And how would you encourage other people, your colleagues, current, current colleagues, to hire people with disabilities onto their staff? Well, Okay, that's a, that's a good question. Um, employment, uh, let's just, just, just say on a, a Senate staff or any, anything like that. There's two sides to this. One is the employer side that's reluctant to hire someone with a disability. They don't have an experience at it. They maybe are nervous about it. So there's that kind of reluctance on the employer side. And as I speak to a lot of disability groups, Michelle, there's a reluctance in the disability community also. Well, you say, well, why is that? Well, because a lot of times a person with a disability, maybe they tried for employment before, they were turned down, uh, they've tried two or three times, they keep getting turned away, they don't find a welcoming atmosphere. And yet, so, they're reluctant to put themselves forward again. They, they don't want to be pitied. They don't want to be patronized. They want employment as a job. So there's some reluctance on the part of persons in the disability community to put themselves forward. There's also the fear that if they put themselves forward to get a job, they may lose some of their services that they qualify for. Medicaid services, for example, or something like that, that they might lose some of those services. So there's that reluctance. Oh, there's two things have to work. Employers have to let persons in the disability community know that they are welcome. They're welcome to come in and they will be treated like everybody else. They won't be patronized, they won't be pitied, if there's accommodations to be made, we'll make those accommodations. 
But first and foremost, there has to be the step forward by the employer to let people know they will be welcome into their employee into that employer employment pool. Secondly, you got to go to the disability community and say, whatever your past experience has been, don't let that stop you. If you find someone out there that's that's reaching out, go towards it. Don't be afraid that perhaps you won't fit or that maybe you'll be turned away. Don't don't let that deter you. Um, so I want to backtrack just a little bit, actually, into the private sector. Why do you think disability, oh, actually public and private as it pertains to, why do you think disability is not included in many um, employers' diversity initiatives like race and sex um, and sexual orientation, for that matter? Anything but disability. I'm, I'm always waiting for the pin to drop. I'm like, and, and, and. Right. I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't mention it and I just momentarily forgot about it maybe. Yes, I keep going and the harkinsummit.org, we keep going after companies saying, include persons with disabilities in your diversity portfolio. Simple. Or if you're a public employer in the public sector, you have a diversity portfolio, make sure that persons with disabilities are included. I'm glad you brought that up. It, 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 it should be just standard. Yeah, but why do you think it's not? Because it, it, it is not. Uh, well, I think, it's, it, again, it's just, um, uh, what am I trying to think of? It, it's, it's just history. It's, it's sort of inertia. <laughs> you know, uh, their diversity portfolio, they've always focused on sex uh, or color or national origin. That's just the way they've been doing things. So sometimes it's just hard to get them to change. I, that's it. More than anything else, it's just. Change is hard with anything, though. I mean, look at how the LGBTQI movement has. They have moved so rapidly yeah. and uh, societal acceptance have, you know, increased tremendously. Right. Why can't the disability movement have that kind of traction? Boy, uh, well, I don't, that's a good question. I don't know why. Uh, well, I don't know. Um, and I'm searching for an answer. Uh, but the reason I'm searching because I don't know the answer to that. You're right, the LGBTQ community uh, have moved very rapidly uh, and they've broken down a lot of barriers to employment but it's not been true of the disability community uh, as such. Um, well, I, again, I guess as I'm searching for an answer, I'm thinking that, that someone in the LGBTQ community, they don't have problems of accessibility. They don't have problems of transportation. They don't have problems of support services. Um, um, aside from maybe uh, uh, maybe um, uh, facilities, uh, 
they don't need any accommodations at work as a person with a disability might. So, you know, again, uh, the approach for a person with a disability is, is all encompassing transportation, housing, independent living, uh, support services, uh, accommodations at work. Um, there's just a little bit more involved, perhaps, in the structural side of it for a person with a disability. But again, it's not a mountain, it's a molehill. It's, it's little things that need to be done, that's all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think searching for that answer and pursuing those solutions will will be something that is very important moving forward. So that's a perfect segue into our last few questions of looking into the future. Um, so I wanna ask some questions about the Senate since you were there for so long, three decades. Um, so you're lamenting about how, the sen how senators don't really discuss and debate anymore and that perhaps the younger generations are better at communicating in person. So how do you think, or communicating period, how do you think we can improve communication at all levels and generations in this modern time and age where most people are more comfortable sharing on social media and giving monologues than they are dialoguing and debating with one another? Um, speak on the role of technology and how that's changed the way we communicate. Because, you know, being a younger person, I can tell you communication I don't think is um, well is uh, is better at, at our level, and uh, so yeah, give me your thoughts on that. Well, again, uh, the burden is on the disability community here. Senators and congressmen always have town meetings. They have town hall gatherings. They go back to their states. They go back to their communities all the time. And usually it's a public, usually you can go to their website or you can find out where they are and when their town meetings are. Where are persons with disabilities? Why aren't they going to those town meetings? Now, again, you might say, well, it's a burden. You got to get there. Well, I, I got that. I understand that. But if, if they're having a town meeting in a place that's inaccessible, they should go to their offices and say, wait a minute, you're having a town meeting, but persons with disabilities can't even get there. Well, maybe they never thought about it. Well, you got to start breaking that down. You've got to be proactive on this. Uh, get your local chapter of ADAPT. <laughs> if you know what I mean about ADAPT and, and get them out there uh, and, and have them start talking and saying, wait a minute, you've got to have a place that's accessible. And then persons with disabilities have got to show up with their families and start asking tough questions, advocating how many, now Senator so-and-so, Senator Smith so-and-so, you employ 60 people in your offices. How many are persons with disabilities? We make up 15 to 20% of the population. Why do you only have one person with a disability working on your staff? And usually that's what they would want to do. They say, well, I have, I have Michelle here and Michelle, she, she, she's, 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 a, she's a person with a disability. Well, that's just one person. But we're 15 to 20% of the population. 
Would you would you say that you met your diversity quota for women if you had one woman on your staff? Or you had one person of color on your staff? No. Anyway, you you've got to this you got to get in their face. You got to get in their heads. You got to confront them with this with other people there. Go to a town meeting. Make sure you're heard and and ask these tough questions. And you know what? you'll find people in the audience will be on your side. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I think getting, being involved, and then I don't even know if most of the uh, town halls are held or even in venues that are wheelchair accessible. But um, but if, if individuals with disabilities participated in them, they would know, and then they would urge for something like that more easily than ever before. So I, I do get your point there. So having worked in during these four decades, having worked alongside with so many different types of people of age, race, gender, disability, uh, what is your advice on working alongside people who are different from you ideologically and personality-wise? How do you work with colleagues whose style and personality different from your own? And how do you deal with the incredible pettiness that sometimes comes with being a politician or being a person, period, sometimes. For instance, I understand that you are unable to stand next to George H.W. Bush during the signing of the ADA into law due to difficulties with campaigns that year. How do you handle all of that? Well, first of all, you have to be a person with uh, an open mind and and understand that not everybody's going to agree with you. We're all different. We have different views. Um, but it takes time and it takes an effort to reach out to people. Um, and, and sometimes you find people that in the Senate that oftentimes don't agree with you on a lot of things, but they might agree with you on one or two things. There may be some way you can work something out uh, and you have to look and work for those kinds of avenues. Uh, it, it, it's almost gotten to the point, I think, in, in politics now in America where it's, it's I think it, it, it's, it's uh, uh, more newsworthy uh, if people are butting heads all the time rather than working together on something. And the social media that's out there uh, that stir people up all the time with false information and that kind of thing. Um, uh, being, being a senator or a congressman and doing it correctly and, and doing it in a way that brings people together, it's a tough job. I mean, you can't do it with sound bites and you can't do it on social media. It has to be in person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, so over the decades, um, you know, as well as anybody that the Senate has changed over the years. Um, what how has the Senate changed for the better and what can be improved to make it even more efficient and productive, um, uh, a productive environment for uh, lawmakers to to work 
skin. And uh, I know you love the sun and you've emphasized that in multiple outlets and you've really enjoyed your time there. And so I think you can definitely see the pros and cons of the changes over the years. So I want to, you to shed some light on that. Well, the single most important thing we can do is to change the way we finance campaigns. <clears throat> I mean, it, it, senators and congressmen and congresswomen uh, spend an inordinate amount of time just raising money. Uh, and we don't associate with each other any longer. For example, uh, most people show up Monday afternoon uh, usually from for some insignificant vote Monday night. They're there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, then they're gone. Um, and Tuesday lunches are for policy lunches, so it's on Thursday. Wednesday's the only day you have lunch open, and that's all fundraisers. And votes are scheduled now so that people can go across the street from the Capitol and dial for dollars. Uh, I've often said senators and members of, con of the House are now like mid-level telemarketers. They're on the phone all the time, calling for money. It's just incredible. So we got to change the way campaigns are financed. That's it's just crucial. Secondly, the um, structure uh, for debate has to change. Uh, for example, in the House of Representatives, when I was there for 10 years, most bills came on the floor with an open rule, which means if you want to add an amendment, you can add an amendment, have it debated, have it voted on. I think last year in the House was a record year for what they call closed rules. In other words, no amendments are allowed. Well, that stifles debate. That stifles creativity. Uh, so that needs to change in the House. And in the Senate, we need to change. We don't have a rules committee as such to set up that rule, but the majority leader of the Senate can, and this is sort of, I'm sorry to say these words because most people don't know what I mean, but they fill the tree. They, they, when a bill comes to the floor, it's, it's filled by the majority leader so no one can offer an amendment. So that takes away debate. That takes away the offering of amendments on the floor. That's got to change in the Senate, uh, where we have the opportunity, once again, for senators to offer amendments and have them debated. That means that we need work weeks that go from Monday through Friday, maybe even on Saturday, <laughs> and then at some other time, uh, take time off for going back to your states and your district, which is important. Uh, so changing the money chase, changing the way bills come to the floor are the two most important things that can be done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those are really great points. And that there are certainly, now that we, we've drawn out the issue, I think the hard part is working to change it, right? And to improve upon it. Um, so my very last question for you is um, going back to people with disabilities and and um, you know the focus here. How do you think having more individuals with disabilities in Congress, House, Senate, um, local level governments, and perhaps in in the executive? But for for our case, we're talking about the 
the Congress, right? Congress. How do you think more participation of people with disabilities in Congress will make lives better for Americans overall? Well, because persons with disabilities, as I said, make up 20% of our population. Well, I mean, they ought to be adequately represented. And, and by being in the Congress, being there where the action is, they can bring their experiences and their views to the forefront. Um, and that's why I, it, it's, it's just like having more women in the Congress. I've long believed half of this Congress ought to be women. The more women are in, it just, it, it opens minds, it opens eyes, it gets people a different view on how to approach things. Uh, that's why we need more persons with disabilities in the Congress, there, sitting at the table as they make these decisions. Uh, not that I believe that persons with disabilities are any smarter or any better, we're the same. I mean, we run the gamut. But people with disabilities bring life experiences. They bring a view uh, uh, that they can add to the debate and to the development of legislation. That's why it's so critically important uh, to get more persons with disabilities. And, and again, I go back to where I started, Michelle, not just in the Congress, school boards, city councils, mayors, uh, state legislatures, on up the ladder. That's why it's so vitally important to have more persons with disabilities in those positions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think people don't realize how laws and legislations are shaped by people's personal experiences. Those people writing them, you can you can sometimes see the direct uh, influence. And so even even though I was only in the Senate for a short while, we installed a automatic door in in our Senate office and in those it over time and with the increasing number it will change the physical infrastructure of the place as well one automatic door at a time one one braille card at a time right very true very true exactly so with that thank you so much sander harkin you've been very generous and very insightful and empowering and inspiring i've enjoyed interviewing you i've enjoyed researching you um you i feel like i've become a better person throughout this whole process um you've lived a larger than life life <laughs> and i hope i hope i aspire to be even a little bit of who you become well just do it. Okay, that old Nike thing, just do it. <laughs> I think you've come a long way. I've, I've read your background. It's phenomenal. I mean, wow. I mean, you have a lot to offer, and and uh, and, and your questions are just right on point. So uh, I, 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 I would say this. I look forward to uh, uh, Michelle being even doing more things in the future, okay? And any way that we can work together, let me know. Of course, of course.